it is this morning that we come and we, we talk about this battle coming in Galatians chapter 5. And it is a battle for our hearts. It's a battle for souls. The Southern Baptist Convention recently did a study of our county and said that our county is somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 to 90% unchurched. It means 80 to 90% of the people who live in our county do not go to church, do not want to have anything to do with the church. Folks, we have a mission. And we have a lot of work to do. And I've been getting together with some of the other pastors on the island and in, Buf- and in Bluffton and, and saying, what can we do together better than we can do individually as churches? And so uh, we, we want to see God's spirit move powerfully. But the first place, folks, it has to move is in us. You do realize that in order for the church to be effective out there, there's got to be a revival within our own lives so that we are impassioned, that we are changed. And then so when we go out, we have a message that isn't a hypocritical message, but a message that we actually firmly believe and live out, not perfectly, but live out nonetheless. And so what we're looking at here, Paul was saying that he was talking and going, folks, You've got to wrestle with these realities because the fact of the matter is there is a battle happening within the life of the believer. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor, once said that the Christian life is more understood or more noticed by its warfare than by its peace. We always want to talk about being at peace and love and all of that, but he's saying there is a warfare going on. It's difficult to walk for Christ, isn't it? It's difficult to to stand for him and to live for him. It's difficult to be in a marriage and to represent Christ well in your marriage. Uh, I got together when I love doing weddings. I think I've uh, done around 100 and something weddings, like 108 weddings in the course of my ministry. And I always sit with these couples and I say, guess what you're about to step into? It's awesome. But what's going to be revealed more than anything else is your heart in this marriage. It's going to be sort of just laid open, and all of a sudden, you're going to be in the midst of battles that you never expected, that you never knew were there. You're going to be arguing over the silliest things, and you're going to find yourself to be the most incredibly selfish person in the world. The most dangerous, the person that's the most dangerous person for your marriage is sitting in your seat. They usually walk away from that first meeting with me going, do you even like marriage? Do you want us to get married? And I do, but I want them to be, have reality in their lives. And it's the same way in the Christian life. Paul's saying, if you're walking with Christ, there's going to be a battle. There's going to be conflict. And it's not an external conflict. It's internal. And here's the kicker within what we're going to talk about today. If you are living your life right now and there is no internal battle between the spirit and the flesh, you are in an incredibly dangerous place. No battle, no conflict, usually means a very absence, the very absence of the work of the spirit in your life. But when battles come, Ah, that's the Spirit of God wrestling with our flesh and going, okay, we're going to live for Christ. We're going to win this. So the battle is a good thing, folks. The battle is a good thing. And that's what Paul's talking about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over with me to chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 26. Now we're going to look at this same passage the next several weeks because we're going to move right through this into the fruit of the Spirit. Interesting that Paul starts to teach about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and the like, 
on the heels of a battle. Saying the only way to see love experienced in your life is to walk by the Spirit, but the only way to really walk by the Spirit is to fight the flesh. There is a battle that happens. So if you want love in your life and joy in your life, there's going to be a fight for it because everything else is trying to take it from you. And so this is how he comes to it. This is God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. J.C. Ryle was a wonderful Anglican uh, in Great Britain. And he wrote about this battle in the Christian life. He says it's a fight. He wrote this around the time of World War II in the context of all the battles going on in England. And he said this. He said, but there is another warfare of far greater importance than any war that was ever waged by man. It is a warfare which concerns not two or three nations only, but every Christian man and woman born into the world. The warfare I speak of is the spiritual warfare. It's the fight which everyone who would be saved must fight about his or her soul. This warfare, I am aware, is a thing of which many know nothing. Talk to them about it, and they are ready to set you down as a madman, an enthusiast, or a fool. And yet it is as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. It has its hand-to-hand conflicts and its wounds. It has its watchings and fatigues. It has its sieges and assaults. It has its victories and its defeats. Above all, it has consequences which are awful, tremendous, and most peculiar. In earthly warfare, the consequences to nations are often temporary and can be fixed. In spiritual warfare, it is very different. Of that warfare, the consequences when the fight is over are unchangeable and eternal. He that would understand the nature of true holiness must know that the Christian is a man of war. If we would be holy, we must fight. Wow. Those are somewhat sobering words, aren't they? The Christian life is a fight. I remember as a kid, in the summertime, my dad would give our choir director a break. And so, and Sunday mornings, we would just have a time of picking songs. And so in the congregation, dad would go, all right, what would we like to sing for the first hymn? And people in the congregation would raise their hands. And I grew up in a Presbyterian church, and we had the little old, uh, you know, Burgundy Presbyterian hymnal. And I think it was something like hymn number 424, Onward Christian Soldiers. And back in the back, I was always sitting there. I knew not to sit up front because my sister one time got in a lot of trouble up front. My mom came out of the choir, took her out back. 
And I was like, if I stay back, maybe I'm safe. So um, I hung out back there, but during the summers, every summer, I like uh, Onward Christian Soldiers. Interesting. When's the last time you've heard that song sung? Not in our church, but in any church. Hymns and songs about warfare are gone within the Christian church by and large today because our culture has shifted and want to talk about peace. We don't want these war birds. We don't want war eagles out there. We want doves. We want people just to be at peace and no more conflict. And so the preachers and the songs and all of the things are about how you can be at peace. And Paul wouldn't understand any of that. Paul would say, we want you to experience peace that is shalom and flourishing, but in order to get there, it's going to take a fight. It's going to take a battle, and you have got to be prepared for the battle. Why do so many kids who grow up in the church, how come so many of you who grew up in the church, you came through Sunday school class, you watched your little felt Jesus move across the board and your felt Noah and and all of that, and and you knew your little stories and and you knew all of those great things and you could say, Jesus loves me, this I know, and you could sing deep and wide and you could do all of that stuff. And then you went off to college and your faith was obliterated. Why? Because you were going with a very elementary education about the things pertaining to God and to Christ, and you stepped into PhD level uh, folks who could pick it apart and tear it apart, and you didn't know and you weren't prepared. It's the same thing happening within the spiritual realm. We step out of the church and we tell you, go out now and live for Jesus. We want to know Jesus and we want to make him known. So go live for Jesus and we send you out into the world and you are absolutely ill-prepared because what you are facing, the scriptures teaches, is like a lion who is roaring and prowling about ready to take on its prey. God warned uh, to, um, that he said sin crouches at your door and its desire is for you. If any of you all are cat people, uh, you see and watch your cats when they're out in the front yard try to mimic their long-lost relatives, lions and tigers, and they crouch down. Why do cats and, and cats of prey crouch? They crouch to hide themselves, and they crouch to bring all of their power down so that when they spring forth, they spring on their prey unannounced and for one purpose only, to kill Paul and the scriptures say that's what the world is like around us and that's what Satan, the evil one, is like and that's what he's trying to do for us. And so we walk out of here with our nice little songs and our wonderful little hymns and we walk out into the world and then something happens. You're smack dab in the face with cancer. You're smack dab in the face with temptation. You're smack dab in the face with a neighbor who's a jerk. You're smack dab in the face with the person in the mirror who's a jerk. And you don't know what to do with yourself, and you don't know what to do with your neighbor, and you don't know what to do with cancer, and you don't know what to do with bankruptcy, and you don't know what to do with the person at Walmart who just can't seem to figure it out in front of you, and you can't understand why these kids at school are so mean to you, or why you don't get to do this, or why you don't get to do that. And all along, you just look down and you go, what would Jesus do? do? Well, what would Jesus do? He would love in a way that is almost foreign to us. He would react in a way that we have no idea about. And normally what happens when we look at that and we look at the neighbor and we look at the person around, we just simply go, white flag. I give up. 
I surrender. I give in to my passions. I'm just going to take the gloves off and I'm just going to yell. I'm just going to argue. I'm just going to fight. I'm just going to pop that can and drink it. I'm just going to smoke that smoke. I'm just going to do whatever it is. I'm just going to do it. I don't want to fight anymore. It's too much. I just give in. And for many, many of you, most of your Christian life has simply been you waving a white flag because you don't want to fight and you weren't prepared for a fight. Paul is trying to say to us, folks, get ready for the fight. And what he's going to teach us is this. You're not fighting on your own. You have the spirit of God living in you. The warrior king who's dwelling in you. The one who defeated Goliath. The one who took on Egypt. The one who did great things. That God. The one who actually took on death itself and was victorious and there's an empty grave and he rose again from the dead, that God is dwelling in you and saying to you, you can have victory, would you just pick up the sword and fight with me? He will fight for you, but he will fight with you as well. And what Paul is trying to say to us this morning is folks, get ready for a battle. Some of you are gonna leave here and go, I don't want to go to that church, what a, wow. But the reality is you know you're already in a battle. I just want to talk about it. I just want to talk about the pink elephant that's in the room and not just go, wow, there's something that smells really bad and there's big piles of stuff that we have to walk around. We know that the battle's there. We know that we're losing in the battle. We want to understand what Paul's talking about of just live by the Spirit, but we don't talk about it too much. And so today and next Sunday, we're going to take this text and we're going to break it open and try to figure out what does it mean to fight the battle? What does it mean to fight the battle? And the first part of fighting the battle is to know why you were saved, the end for which you were saved. And the end for which you were saved is freedom. And so you're battling, as we said last week, for your freedom, to continue to live in freedom. And Paul in this section keeps talking about, don't go back to the law, don't go back to it, because what he's saying is there is a battle taking place in you, and the natural tendency of our hearts, of our flesh, he calls it here, that part of us that is bent against God and what is good in God, is it's saying to us, we want to suck you back into a system of thought into a system of belief that's trying to earn your salvation. It's drawing you back and pulling you back. And he says, don't ever return to that, but stand in your freedom and live by the power of the Spirit in your life. And so what Paul is talking about is this freedom begins with a rescue. You've been rescued from bondage. You've been set free by it. And now he continues on and he says, you're freed from the law and now you're freed to live for the law. But it is a battle to keep you from going back there. That you're going to keep going back and keep going back and being drawn back in. And this is every Christian's battle. You all look different. You're from different families. You have different backgrounds. But I can tell you this that you have in common today if you are a believer. The person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you is fighting the same battle. Parents... Let me tell you something about your kids. They're fighting this battle. Husbands, let me tell you about your wives. They're fighting this battle. Wives, your husbands are fighting this battle. All of us are fighting it together. Your friends are fighting it. And so what we've got to do is realize it. 
Because if we realize that we're all in a battle, guess what that does? It helps us know how to help one another. If I know that you're really wrestling with it and you're battling it, and instead of when I see you fall going, McCutcheon fell again. He messed up again, that doggone McCutcheon. He lost it. Say, man, he lost in that battle. How can I come alongside him? Many of you were in the military and you served alongside other men and women in the military. And when someone messed up, I doubt in the heat of the battle, you looked at them and tried to critique all the things that they did wrong. You went and you covered for them. And you went and you, if they got wounded in the battle, you helped pick them up and bring them back to a mass unit. Why? So that they could get healthy and sent right back out, right? That's the way it is in the Christian life. That we're in the midst of this battle. And this battle that's raging within us is the battle between two natures. It's the spirit, Paul says, versus the flesh. The spirit of God dwelling in you. You do know where the spirit of God rests, don't you? What do you have and who do you have living in you this morning? God. God has taken up residence in you. Do you know that? Does that astonish you? I don't know what you looked like when you woke up this morning. I imagine it wasn't as nice as you look now. And as you woke up this morning, and you had the bed head, and you had the looks, and you had the little, little stains, and you, and you got up, and you walked in, and you looked in the mirror, was the first thought as you looked in the mirror, the dwelling place of the third person of the Trinity of God. This is awesome. I'm going to have a great day. Maybe you didn't think of it then. What about after the shower, and the cup of coffee, and the paper, and all Have you thought about it yet? Most of you haven't even considered that reality. That dwelling within you is the spirit of God himself. The third person of the Trinity, equal with God the Father and God the Son in power and in glory, has taken up residency in you. Folks, I'm amazed by so much that the scripture says, but that part... I can never get my head and heart around. And half the time or more, I don't even believe it. So it's no wonder that I lose so many battles because I fail to realize who's dwelling in me God Himself. And guess what God does when He's dwelling there? God isn't. Let me say this well. God's not a good neighbor in this regard. He says, I'm not going to share that space. And so what happened to us when we became a Christian is that we were lost and we had this sinful heart. It says it was a dead heart. It was a heart of stone. It was a heart of flesh. And God gave us this new heart that's beating for him and alive. And he's taken up residency. But we still have this other part in us, this flesh in us. Paul in Romans 7 said, you've got the flesh. It's the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who is ever going to deliver me from this body of death? He was understanding the battle. Can you guys relate to Paul? Have you ever, I mean, literally on the heels of a good quiet time. Maybe just uh, you've had a good morning and all of a sudden and you're walking and you're doing great. And then out of the blue, you just blow it. Maybe not in a colossal way, but you just blow it. Maybe you are at that store and you're in the checkout line and it says really clearly 10 items or less. 
and the whole cart rolls up in front of you. Or I was having lunch with a friend this week, and I thought I was being a really nice gentleman and a good Christian, and as my friend walked in, I held the door for the next couple as they walked in, and this next couple walked right by me and right by my friend and took our place in line. I didn't do well with that one. I had some choice thoughts for that person. They never verbalized out into vocabulary, but I had some thoughts. I'm thinking, what? Where did that come from? I'm a preacher. I just did a sweet, nice thing. This person took advantage of my niceness, and now I've just slayed them in my mind and heart. This battle going on right there in a silly little Mexican restaurant at lunch on a Friday afternoon with an elder, by the way, who I was with. There's battles constantly going on, aren't there? temptations that are there, and we wrestle with them. Paul speaks about this flesh, and he says, and this is about as far as we're going to get today, because I want to just introduce you to it, uh, and then we're going to talk about the remedy to it briefly, and then really unpack it more next week. But the flesh just isn't a little part of you that's one day going to go away. I used to believe that when I became a Christian, that by the end of my Christian life, the flesh and all of that sinful stuff, it would really be diminished. Those of you who've been walking with Christ for a long time, I'm going to ask you to be bold here. Do you still struggle with sin in your life? Some of you? Yeah. Why? Because the flesh never disappears until glory. And the flesh is that part of us that tries to drag the good things that God has given us. Remember I said it tries to pull us back under the law? Well, what it tries to do here, Paul says that he uses a very interesting word in this section. He uses the word epithumia. And the word epithumia is over-desires. He says, be careful of the over-desires of your flesh. Interesting use of that word, isn't it? Is it wrong to want to be liked. No, there's nothing wrong with it. But an epithumia is saying that you have to be liked. Is it wrong to want to have intimacy in this world? No. But when it becomes an over-desire. Money, is it wrong to want to have money? Is it? No. Ah, But the flesh, taking a good thing that God has given us, and that is wealth or money, draws it back into its system of thought and system of being to become our righteousness, and it becomes an over-desire that we have to have wealth. Is it wrong to want to be in good health? No. There's billion dollars or more spent a year on people who have taken wanting to be healthy into epithumia, over-health that I have to be healthy. Here's a good way for you, a practical test for you to start to root out some of your over-desires, some of those epithumias in your life. Here it is. Think about the thing that if it was taken away from you today, you would consider just shutting it all down. You would just as soon crawl in your bed pull the blanket up over your head and say, God, just take me. I can't handle this anymore. 
And whatever it is that you're thinking about right now, it could be your spouse, your child, your wealth, your house, whatever it is, whatever it is that you're saying, if this thing or person is taken from me, I might consider the fact of I don't know that I want to live anymore. Whatever that is over there has become an over-desire. It has become a functional savior for you. And it is functioning in a way for you to say, if I have my wealth, if I have my health, if I have my loved one, if, if I have that date, if I have that boyfriend, if I have that grades, if I have whatever it is, if I have that, then I'll be content and happy in life. It's functioning as a savior for you. It's become an over-desire because none of those things in and of themselves are wrong. It's when the flesh draws them into its sort of sphere of influence and says, you've got to have it. Do you understand the difference between if someone criticizes you? Does anyone, no one likes to be criticized. I joke around about myself that I'm an approval suck. I'm a people pleaser and I want people to like me uh, and all. And I've had to work my whole life to get rid of some of those tendencies. Because when people would criticize me, if you really want to make the rest of my day bad, and I'm not, say something bad about the service today. Now, I'm not telling you that so you won't say anything. I'm just saying I could hear 200 of you say, wow, the service was awesome, great sermon. And one person could walk out and go, eh. I'd get home at lunch today, and Lisa goes, so, what do you think? I go, someone went, yeah. It just would devastate. There's a difference between a criticism, and no one likes it, but when a criticism all of a sudden devastates you, what has become your over-desire? People, their opinion of you. What can displace it? Ah, the Spirit saying, someone else has an opinion of you. The Father in heaven says that you're awesome. The Father in heaven says that he knows that you're going to mess up every now and then, but you're still his son or daughter. The Father in heaven's belief in you is this. He's going to provide for you. He's going to take care of you. Did you lose a million dollars? Yes. Was it hurtful? Yes. Do you want to do it again? No. But I'm still going to see you through. It doesn't have to absolutely devastate you at every level. Paul is talking about this kind of battle within the Christian life. It's rooting out those desires because really what you have living in you is not schizophrenia but two desiring centers. One desires the things of God and one desires the things of the flesh and there's a battle raging in the middle of it. And so the question then becomes, what do we do with the battle? Well, the first thing we'll get close to ending on this is don't deny the battle. Live honestly. Live honestly. And what I mean by that is this. Paul talks in here, and we're going to get to it later next week. He talks about living in community. By living in community, what I have to do is say this. I have to be able to look at a friend and say to that friend, Hey, I'm battling on this one. I need you to know. That my desire is to honor the Lord, but there is another desire in me that's wanting to go do this. Would you help me? Would you remind me of who's living in you? me? Would you remind me of these things? Would you help point me back to the truth? And hopefully that friend, that spouse, that child, whomever it is, is going to say, hey, let me take you back. And you know the place where the battle really is won? It's right here. Because guess what this book is filled with? Truth and promises about what's really going on. 
And so when I start to buy into a lie that says no one likes you, when I start to buy into a lie that says you're a failure and you're not going to make it, what are you doing stepping out? I need a friend who can come along and say, Bill, let me tell you about you. You are more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You are a son of the God of heaven himself. He celebrates over you. He says you have what it takes. Let me tell you also about this king back in the Old Testament who struggled with just what you're struggling with. And God said he was a man after his own heart. And there was this prophet who messed up and God still loved him and used him powerfully. Bill, let me take you back here. But I can't do that and you can't do that for me if I don't ever share with you that I'm struggling. And so part of this battle that has to take place is I need to know and you need to know that there are people in your foxhole with you who are in the battle. And for most of you, you have lived your life trying to deny the reality of the battle in your life and making sure everyone around you thought that you had everything together. One thing I would love about this church and the reputation of this church going forward, I would love us to be a church that has this reputation. That we're a mess. And it's a place where messy people can come and deal with their messy lives. I know the table's moving. I realize it. Because half the women here went, (gasps) So here, let me put you at ease. So, there we go. Now you're not distracted. But I just want to talk for a second. Life is hard enough without us having to pretend that we've got it together. I don't share with you everything that goes on in my marriage. It's no need. I don't need you to share everything that goes on in your marriage. But I'll tell you this. I don't have a perfect marriage. My kids don't have a perfect dad. I don't have it all together. And if me not having it all together negates me from being your pastor, then okay. But what I hope is the fact that what we can do together is live out true life together and of me being a safe place for you and you being a safe place for me and us being a safe place for one another to go, I'm battling. And even some days to come and say, not only am I battling, I lost. I lost last night. I lost this morning. I've been losing for years and I need some help. Would you help me? I hope that's the reputation of our church, that we're a safe place because I have a feeling that the 80 or 90% of people in our county who don't come to church don't come to church at some level because they think what they're going to get at church is a whole bunch of condemnation and a whole bunch of you're just a mess up. And they already know that intrinsically. What they need to hear is, man, I know. I'm with you. I'll end with this. I joke around with couples, but it's a very true statement. I may have said it to you before, and if I have, I apologize. But husbands, when your wives get stuck in a mud puddle, and I'm not talking a literal mud puddle, they're having a bad day. Their pants don't fit quite right. The dress that used to just flow is just a little tighter, and they're asking you, does this make me look fat or whatever, and you're just terrified, and you don't know what to say. Or she's just having a bad emotional day, or the kids just haven't done what they needed to do, or she didn't get invited to go do something with some of the other women at the club, or whatever it is, and she's stuck in that mud puddle. What does your wife need from you? Let me flip the question. Wives, what do you need from your husbands at that moment? I'll tell you what you don't need. 
is answers and a plan to get out of the mud puddle, right? You don't need a critique that says, well, sweetheart, if you'd only listened to me earlier, I would have, I, I told you how to avoid this. Honey, this is pretty silly stuff. It's just a silly tennis game. Honey, it's just a silly dress. Go buy a new one. They don't want responses like that. You know what your wives want? They want you to get in the mud puddle with them. And most of us men stand and go, why would I get these pants and these shoes dirty? She got in there all on her own. Why would I want to get messy with her? That's the Christian life too. When I share with you and say, I'm really wrestling with this one. What I don't need is you to go, let me tell you how to fix it. Eventually we can get there, but what I need is for you to not even take off your shoes, but to step right in with your nice Sunday best and get into my mud puddle and my chaos and say, Bill, I've been there too. But let me point you to this God who entered into the chaos of humanity to redeem it. And he doesn't stand outside of your messed up world. He got right smack dab in the middle of it so that he could redeem it and you. That's the beauty of the gospel, folks. There's a battle raging. And what I hope is that you'll own the battle and that you'll be vulnerable enough with other people around you to say, I'm wounded and I'm losing. Would you help me? Would you help? Man, that'll be a great day. Because Paul says at the end of it, and the Lord says, I will give you victory in your life in this battle, for I've already won it. Let me fight for you. Let's pray. God, what we're talking about this morning is so incredibly personal and so incredibly pertinent. I know right now in this room that there are some who have just waved the white flag. They are just hoping upon hope and even against hope that they'll just slide into heaven because they're tired of the battles. They've messed up enough. They just don't know how to fight and they don't want to fight anymore. God, would you come incredibly close to those folks today and would you minister peace to them? Would you remind them that you brandish a sword and that you're a king who rides and that you sit upon a throne and that no enemy of yours will win at the end of the day and that all of your enemies have been defeated and that whoever it is that is feeling absolutely lost now, would they hear the voice of their father in heaven saying, I'm with you, I've always been with you and I will always be with you to the end of the age. And Father, for others around who feel lonely in their battles, would we find a camaraderie in our community of believers here to walk along together and at times to draw the sword for our friend, at other times to stand and fight with them and other times just to, to nurse their wounds. Father, would you help us in these things today? We want to be a church that celebrates the reality of the gospel in our lives and that takes very, true, very seriously this idea of battle. Husbands, fight for our wives. Wives for our husbands. Parents for their children. Fighting the battle. We praise you and give you glory in Christ's name. Amen. If I'd planned better, 